Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Well, welcome back to Cross Section. Thanks so much for joining us again. We are actually at the last episode in our first little series. This is episode number eight. Uh, We were just reflecting. It's hard to believe that we began looking at Partygate and Wordle and things like that. And that just seems like a lifetime ago, only eight weeks ago. Uh, We're joined today by Joe Evans, Danny Webster. Um, So welcome, guys, to our final show in this first little season that we've done. Hello. Good morning. Uh, this is the week in which the world's number one tennis player announced her retirement at the uh, ripe old age of 25, which just seems incredible. Uh, we've seen President Zelensky continue to urge Western nations to help Ukraine in the war. It feels like a, I mean, it is daily commentary on social media, in the papers. How is that going? Is it stuck? Are we in for a long war? So, so many questions around that. We've also very significantly seen the Taliban backtrack on their commitment to reopening high schools for girls, particularly after our episode last week, in which we were wrestling with a whole series of questions around International Women's Day, International Women's Month, uh, as we've reflected on some of those. And it is basically the second anniversary of of COVID hitting. So can you reflect two years ago, Danny, what, what were you doing two years ago? Well, two years ago, I had just returned from what was potentially a super spreader event that I don't think led me having COVID. It was my parents' 40th wedding anniversary. Me and my parents and my sisters and their family had all been in a big house together. My brother-in-law had had a suspicious cold cough and various other people ended up getting well in the days after that. But actually, two years on, I have now fallen to the COVID. Uh, so I tested positive this morning. So I have COVID for the first time in two years. Oh, Danny, you have succumbed finally. And Joe, two years, I mean, so two years ago was the lockdown day, I think I should say, because it was a, couple, a week or two before school. But lockdown at 5pm on the 23rd of March. Do you remember? Mm-hmm. It? Yeah, because so I was working for a church at the time, we'd all gone into the office that morning, and we'd all said, we don't think we should be coming in anymore. So I went into work for about an hour, drove back home, and then felt slightly smug because that that evening was when the lockdown was announced. So I was like, oh, we were right. We shouldn't have been in work. But yeah, very surreal. Oh, also just like trying to remember now, because I, I technically this is my freedom day from having COVID and it's it's been fine. But just remembering how scared we all were two years ago, it was properly scary. So I'm the only one now who still managed to avoid COVID by, <laughs> by hovering on the outer reaches of the UK here in Northern Ireland, although there's plenty of it about. And two years ago, I was actually at the GPs for a bug, a Guardia, and it was the everybody was masked to the max. You couldn't get into your GP in normal, but I had this picked up this crazy bug traveling just before lockdown occurred. And uh, so I had to go in and get tested for all sorts of things. I was like the only person in the surgery of everybody running around in full PPE, breathing apparatus and all this crazy stuff. And so I remember getting wiped out by something entirely different for those first few weeks uh, during that pretty surreal uh, first lockdown period. So we're, we're, we're switching gears entirely. We've, uh, we have started this series with Partygate, like the tail end, it felt like, of some of those COVID stories. Not the very end by any stretch, but the tail end of this round. But now, this week, one of the other big stories that's hit the news that we want to reflect on a little bit is the uh, the spring statement from the Chancellor and the impact of that on cost of living. There's lots of questions in general, like the world feels like it's changing 
in terms of that whole piece. We've got inflation, uh, we've got cost rising across the board. Some of that's to do with the war in Ukraine, some of it just generally. So we've got fuel costs up, people costs up, food costs up. So many implications of that. So Danny, you might want to kick us off a little bit on the spring statement. I don't want a full summary by any stretch, but maybe a couple of highlights and then Joe and I'll give our running commentary on what we thought of it. Well, one of the perhaps most important aspects was not so much what Rishi Sunak announced, but what was announced uh, alongside that was that inflation was at 6.2% and is expected to stay at that level or even increase uh, throughout this year. That means that costs, as Peter said, are rising and that puts a real pressure on many households and energy costs in particular will go up at the start of April. Expectation is they will go up again in October next year. So the pressure on people's uh, on people's finances is immense. So Rishi Sunak's made a couple of announcements. Uh, the most significant one is that he's increased the threshold that workers will start paying national insurance contributions. It means that this puts about £330 back uh, into your bank account. But at the same time, the rate of national insurance contributions is still going up. So if you're on low incomes, this change benefits you. If you're on higher incomes, you will continue to pay more national insurance. He's also committed by 2024 to reduce income tax by 1%. Uh, so those are a couple of the key headlines. What there isn't was anything around benefits, uh, the universal credit rate that had been uh, increased by £20. That, wasn't, that reduction wasn't reversed. The increase in benefits is set on what inflation was last year. So that's at 3.1%. So the increase in benefits is far below uh, the level of inflation at the moment. So Joe, any, what were your reflections as you heard the spring statement and Danny's masterful analysis of it? Yeah, <clears throat> I um, one comment he made during the statement, which I just thought was just odd, was he, he did, I guess it's classic, it's classic House of Commons stuff, but he sort of said only a Tory government could do this, a Labour government never could sort of thing. And it's like, you're not giving good news here. Like, it's not really a time to be boasting about the success of your government when, like Danny said, there was nothing there for people on benefits, nothing for people on the lowest, you know, on the poverty line. And this whole thing about cutting income tax in two years' time everything I've kind of read and heard around it is just that that's a pretty weird thing to do it's kind of making a promise on they, they don't know what the the financial situation is going to be in two years they they're promising away money that they don't have or don't know that they'll have it's just it just it just to be honest for me it rang a bit hollow and disappointing which wasn't a huge shock if I'm being honest. Okay, so I mean, for us here, again, we're cross-sections, so we're trying to drive at the intersection of our faith, what it means to follow Jesus and some of these new stories. And um, what is the challenge for the church in this moment? So some of our member organizations have been commenting and uh, we've seen CAP and others uh, come out and talk about this. Uh, we've seen the pressure on things like food banks within churches. And again, one of the big shifts, I think, is that it's those who are in work, often in some form of employment, who are coming along to food banks. So this is in work poverty. And Danny, you were saying, look, the budget has made maybe some adjustments around that. But the reality is, I mean, I guess the question I want to look at is how do we respond well as Christians? What's one of the things? So I'll say one thing that struck out to me and I'll ask you guys was there was a whole statement about student loans and a bit of a kind of stealth tax on student loans. And it's not about the detail about of that for me. It was just this, who's going to pay 
And again, it seems that it's a, you pick an easy target like those on student loans. So I admit I am old enough not to have student loans. I got my university education for free, as did everybody in my age. In fact, you got grants based on maintenance and then everything began to shift down. But there's an intergenerational shift because my generation got our university education if we went for it for free. What's happening now is not only do you pay for it, Rishi Sunak seems to have kind of done a bit of a raid and said, basically, you have to pay off your loans quicker. And it kicks in earlier. You have to be earning less money before you have to start paying it back. And that's an intergenerational piece that is going to frustrate people because it feels like the older generation get a free pass and the younger generation are paying and they're already paying now for all the money we borrow. So I have real concerns about where that goes. And I just think that unfairness piece is a real problem that we have to speak into. But for you guys, we're, we're at the intersection point. Where were the jarring or the interesting points for you around this statement? Well, I'm slightly younger than you. I was fortunate to have lower fees. So I have paid off my student loan. What Rich Sudok's doing is by freezing the threshold. So it's the kind of hoping no one will notice this. So it rakes in, I think, £33 billion over the next five years. That's the hope. So by freezing the threshold that you start paying it back, but with uh, prices going up, people are going to hit that threshold sooner so they can get more money. I think the thing that really struck me is that all decisions have consequences and economic decisions have significant consequences. It's not to pretend that the decisions that the government face aren't difficult they're immensely difficult uh, policy making is hard but you do make choices so the choice has been to put the money that the government have chosen to spend on those who are working who are those who are earning less money but also that will have some benefit to mitigate against the national insurance increase for all people so it's a very poorly targeted thing and, and Christians Against Poverty have come out really quite strongly criticising the government for missing the opportunities to tackle people who are in significant poverty, people who are disabled, people who do require uh, government support. And I think it is, this is where the, the intersection between my faith and the news comes in. I think it's that the decisions have consequences and we can see where that's gone and we can see the people that have chosen not to help be helped uh, through the decisions this week. Yeah, like you said, Christians Against Poverty, CAP, they're a member organisation of the Evangelical Alliance. They do amazing things. They were interviewed by the BBC. And the thing that really struck me was they were asked, are you, are you seeing sort of a different type of people coming to you with debt problems? And the answer was basically no, because people, people don't come for debt advice, debt help, when, when they're first in that situation. He, he sort of said, maybe it's, maybe it's our stiff upper lip Britishness, but that people there's such shame that comes with being in debt and guilt and all those sorts of things that people wait until the situation is really desperate and I think that just made me think as a Christian as kind of our wider role as the church we we talk about shame and guilt is something that we talk about on a Sunday morning all the time and as there's this this developing crisis we've got to be talking so clearly into that because it will be affecting people in our congregations be talking about the fact that that people don't need to feel shame people don't need to wait till things are too far gone before they before they come to find help that was the thing that really struck me that we need to be talking hope and redemption and and peace into what's such a 
emotive and distressing situation for so many people and where the fault doesn't necessarily lie with them like that's the whole thing about shame right shame shame isn't necessarily feeling guilty for your actions yeah that's 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 what I took away now I remember running uh, those courses in our own uh, church and I remember one of the things we highlighted was two local GPs that actually came up and say we're going on the money management course because partly there is that shame and often they were referring people but saying actually it's really important we go because most of us struggle with our money management they want to say look this everybody needs to get better at this but I guess also the point now is Martin Lewis the money saving expert who actually is a big endorser of GAP has said look he's running out of fixes there aren't simple fixes this is a more fundamental problem and for me one of the things is the church is under pressure right now and the the, the third sector that middle sector is, is feeling a bit of a squeeze so the idea that they can just pick up the pieces the government was actually pretty public in saying thank you to the church and others who stepped in during uh, lockdown and during the pandemic there were people prepared to get out in the front line try and do the food deliveries do things differently but you know church isn't going to be able to pick up the scale of the problems that are that are presenting right now so cap and others are doing a fantastic job food bank trust or trust there are many people operating in there but it's, it's just not acceptable in the long term that the charity sector and the church in particular bears that weight. It can't do it all on its own. We need to have a better interaction with government. And it feels like these fixes are coming late. But also these are more profound problems. I mean, this is what we said. We, we want to link this to a couple of other stories. I mean, that the food inflation is a big deal. The war in Ukraine is driving prices. I mean, I was speaking to somebody recently who was due to get a car in a few months' time and suddenly it's pushed back six, nine months because they're saying we can't get parts. This is affecting everything. We've seen the sacking this well this week, or maybe just maybe ten days ago now. It is so that the P and O staff sacked on Zoom to bring in foreign workers, and the outcry around that, the kind of just like hold on, this isn't acceptable. This is this is unethical. This is appalling way to treat people. And imagine what it's like for those folks in this situation. Great to see the Archbishop of Canterbury and others coming out very clearly and saying, this is no way to literally to do business in this moment and so there's a whole series of things driving this conversation uh, particularly on that P&O sacking do either of you want to come in on, on what you were reading around that and maybe any reflections before we move on I think one of my reflections on the P&O sackings is just how shameless the chief executive has been he appeared in front of parliament this week and he basically said yeah we broke the law and we'd do the same again and for him, his approach was we were in an economic squeeze that meant we had no other option. Uh, our business model wasn't viable. We, it was either we were going to go to the wall and everyone was going to go, or we were going to do this sack all of our British staff and recruit uh, agency workers on a lower wage, around half of what is UK minimum wage. And it was just utterly shameless. And it showed some of the almost the impotency of national governments in an international system, uh, such as shipping, where they are international companies by their very nature. Um, so if they choose to have boats registered in other countries, then their obligations are to those other governments. If they choose to hire workers from other countries, then uh, it's different countries' uh, uh, wage regimes that are in place. But it, it was just the shamelessness. I think the interesting part for me is... Well, how should have they dealt with it? If they were part of a business model that simply wasn't working, where they couldn't afford to operate at the costs and with the levels of staffing that they had, what should they have done? 
would it have been better to have made some people redundant? The consultation process would have taken some time. I think that was why they, they skipped it. I've talked to people who have made people redundant and the difficulties of doing that but also the way that actually it can be done well, it can be done better if they are able to offer a sense that actually they're trying to create and sustain some jobs at the cost of having to lose others. So I think that's my challenge is utterly shameless, awful behaviour, but how should have he acted? Yeah, on a slightly different note coming, you know, Looking again at the issues on as a whole, the cost of, of living, I think something that Martin Lewis has said, which is really interesting, is that basically the government is slightly framing things to blame the whole situation, a lot of the situation on Ukraine, the, the war in Ukraine. And his point was basically that all these problems were there already. And I think as Christians, as we look at the news, it's important that we are aware that we're being fed stories the new you know there's a lot of truth out there as well so i'm not saying we can't trust anything we read but we've got to have our eyes open that everyone has an angle the government has an angle in the way that they present facts and stories and that um yeah not to be not to be kind of swept over and think that and and believe that it's all because of this one terrible situation actually the problems were already there the government has to be held accountable to that. We all, we talked about almost doing an episode on how we process the news, and we've given hints sometimes. You know, for me, that's having a number of different news sites that I'll go to. Sometimes somebody says, "Oh, right, you read the Guardian. Oh, all right, you read the Times. You read the Telegraph or the Mail." My wife gives me the most abuse about that, but it's like that's where people are reading. So I like to span across those three or four different ones, and then a couple of local news sites for me in Northern Ireland. But we're processing those in different ways, depending on how we read the news. I think there is a risk if you're just getting a single source of news, one particular paper. And so uh, that's one of the simple things that I do is scan a number of papers. Now, I'm a little bit of a news junkie. Uh, I'm happy to confess that. So not everybody has the time to do that. But we, we, we great question around where we're sourcing our news and how much we understand of the framing and the lenses that are put on that news. And it's one of the things we constantly want to challenge. I, we probably need to pivot because there's one other kind of more parliamentary political story I want to pick up on uh, around assisted suicide. That's been in the news a little this week, um, partly because of some uh, debates and that there's proposals around uh, reform on that. So where are we on assisted suicide? Danny, I think you're probably leading on that. Uh, yes, I'll give a, a quick update. So last week, there was a proposed amendment to the Health and Social Care Bill uh, in the House of Lords by Lord Forsyth that basically was seeking to compel the government to introduce legislation uh, to allow assisted suicide. There have been multiple efforts over the last 20 years to introduce assisted suicide into the UK, and it has been defeated in Parliament at every occasion. Mo- there is a private member's bill in the House of Lords that is in the committee stages at the moment. There have been attempts in the House of Commons as well. This attempt was rejected by the House of Lords, but not by a huge margin. Odd about this was just the, well, the shenanigans around it. It was a really odd device for Parliament to consider, to try for a House of Lords amendment to try and compel the government to do something. So it was a good job that it was rejected, but the issue of assisted suicide keeps on coming back. And it is a challenge for us to 
continue to explain why life is so wonderful and why the idea of taking life, even in some really, really hard and some really difficult situations, is something we shouldn't be introducing into the law. We've got to stay compassionate on this issue because, I mean, obviously I'm completely with you. Everything in me riles against the idea of introducing assisted suicide. But interestingly, I was talking to a friend about the topic and she very sadly had a grandmother who had Alzheimer's and for the best part of 20 years 15 years was just kind of not really there suffering her family was suffering and my friend was sort of like well if I go that way I definitely want to go into assisted suicide and I found that shocking and sad but but actually for me that was quite helpful for putting putting the human tone on it of actually understanding why someone might think in that way as much as I completely yet like you said human life is precious it's a gift from God it's not for us to take away we've got to remember why people want this I think that'll better equip us to enter into those conversations be compassionate be empathetic be well informed and I think we as a society do need to do better. I mean, euthanasia, I think, comes from a term meaning to die well, but it, 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 we don't have a good understanding, I think, of how to do the end of life care well. My dad passed away about two and a half years ago. He had a much shorter period post a kind of a brain tumour and stroke incident where we had him. And my mother-in-law has just gone through something relatively similar and died about six months ago. And in both cases, we were doing that end of life stage care at home and in various ways. And it definitely, I think, raises the questions. What does it look like to die with dignity, to die well? How do we value that? But also the policy side of me, I suppose, was kicking constantly. There are those real risks and questions on the slippery slope, the pressure put on people around that. So I think navigating that and doing it well, and I think the biggest thing for me in this is the way people often try to do it, sneak it in on amendments, push it through by the back door. Somebody this week said, just put it in your manifesto and let's own it and talk about it properly. Let's have a proper civilised debate around this we I think as Christians need to do better articulating what we understand about the dignity of human life and how to do the end of life stage care well and there are people doing that um, rather than this kind of slightly through the back door type of debate that often happens in a really unhealthy way so you both pause long enough if you're not that's I'm going to move us because we are away just time time's ticking by I see uh, on the news question we did ask the Twitter poll uh, about where you get your news from and that's still out there Joe any update on what the answers are looking like at the moment on that yeah I can give you a live update right now so we asked what's the main way that you can see your news we had 72.7 percent of people said that they read the news 15.9 said they watch the news and 11.4% of people said they listen to the news. So 11.4% of people, we are probably their main source of news this week. So we're doing important work here, guys. Yeah, there really are. I mean, we are we don't have the age demographics, but we know people are consuming it much more now through social media sites where it's filtered in a different way. So Facebook is a huge driver of news content lifted from other places. And um, that shift from all gathering around the TV and doing it together from 15, 20 years ago, we know those shifts um, and it's again why we're in the mix here. So Cross Section is a podcast from the Evangelical Alliance. We're looking at life at the intersection of faith and current affairs and some of the news stories out there. We're trying to explore and wrestle very honestly with how we process those stories, how we try and engage uh, in the stories that we see going on. Uh, so you can follow us at, at EAUK News. 
The Instagram is Evangelical Alliance. You can find, I think, just Danny and myself on social media. I'm always checking who has it. Danny Webster and Peter Lance are on Joe's Twitter. Joe's on Twitter. It's just Damalola and Alicia who are not. Sorry, Joe. It's okay. <laughs> we forget who's on and who's off. So, uh, and Joe is on Twitter as well. So, engage with us all. You can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. Um, I haven't told anybody else this yet, but we might run a little poll just to see what you've thought of the first eight uh, episodes that we've done this little mini season. Uh, we will be back after Easter for a second season, but we're constantly reviewing what's the best way to help people do this kind of engagement. So, we'll be asking around that. And uh, the final thing I should say on this little bridge section is uh, we are a membership organization at the Evangelical Alliance. For the price of a cup of coffee, you can become a member and support the work that we do. We love doing this. We love engaging in the public square. We love these kind of conversations, um, but we love having our members behind us. So we're going in and talking about the voice that we represent. We can say, listen, there's 3,000 churches. There's thousands, tens of thousands of individual members, and that's how we get to speak. So not only do we get your financial support, which is wonderful, we get the added sense of the voice that we're bringing in. So look at eauk.org. Um, uh, website and you will be easily directed to signing up and supporting us as members we're going to the last story we're going to look at today very quickly which is around brian houston and mike andrea these two uh, stories have popped up in the news in the last sort of week to 10 days brian houston's leader of hillsongs and was already stepped to the side because of a police investigation around abuse by his father a more complex situation, not so much we want to talk about today. And um, then there were subsequent allegations. I think I believe a text message, a series of text messages to a female member of the church, and then uh, finding himself. The phrasing was interesting. It was something like, essentially, uh, too much alcohol stumbling into uh, somebody's a female conference attendee's room uh, at a Hillsong's conference. That's that story. And then Mike Andrea, a series of allegations against him around his church. He is the CEO of 24-7 Prayer. But these allegations predate that when he was a leader of a church community that he's still involved in. Basically, they both ended up... Actually, Brian Houston has resigned. Mike Andrea has been stepped down by 24-7 Prayer. So there's actually a slight difference in the response. Either of you want to go first on those stories? Danny, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I, I find, like, obviously, Hillsong is a very high-profile uh, church across the world, and the the saga of Brian Houston, certainly relating to his potential involvement with his father, has been relatively well-documented. I think it raises the question of how much tolerance is given to people behaving badly because of their supposed uh, leadership giftings or charisma. And I think it's a scene that we've seen too many times uh, in church contexts, but in other contexts as well, where people are tolerated for the seeming fruits of their ministry, when actually their character and their behaviour is severely substandard. I, without wanting to get into any of the specifics, because partly because in most of the cases, actually the knowledge is quite partial. Uh, it's just a picture that is is seen too often and you see the headline stories but actually I think about stories with echoes of it that I know of that maybe on a smaller scale maybe with people with less uh, influence or notoriety but actually where similar situations occur where people 
are given platforms because of the the skills they have whether it's in their communications or their charisma or their relational abilities with people but actually people who know them well and who work with them often tell a very different story to the people who might see them just from a platform i am um, i think there's obviously a kind of sadness and fear of what it will cause people to think about christians and the church as a whole when these stories come out But I think thinking back to last week when we were talking about Rachel Dunhollander and um, the need to call out abuse in our own circles when it's going to it's going to damage us when. Yeah, I, I think it's a really positive thing that people are being called out, that change is happening. But I guess my question is, as we as we process these stories how peter if i can ask you how how does how do you see the leader of an organization step down or have to step down because of their actions and not not therefore write off the organization as a whole because i i guess the bible kind of speaks into the fact that with more power there's there's going to be more temptation but yeah, how do, how does one process that? How does someone not just write off Hillsong, for example, because of the actions of a leader? Uh, yeah, so I think that these are these are great questions and hard questions. As I was driving home last night from the airport, and actually there was a discussion on Radio Four about the artist and the art. Uh, in that case, it was R. Kelly, the rapper, uh, and his art. And, but then they were looking at a number of other artists and the cancellation of Russian artists because of the war. And it was that, can you separate the art from the artist? It's not identical, but there's actually a lot of similarities. So uh, I think for me, there's a couple of things I'm processing. One is the need for the accountability structures. So even how these happened, I don't feel very comfortable that Brian Houston resigned. I don't know enough to know everything. I 24-7 seem to have handled this well in the sense that Mike Andrea has been told to step back. As in, they took ownership of the issue. He doesn't get to resign out in his own terms. They say, no, this is serious enough. We're ending that. So that's an organization that seems to me, again, we're a little from a distance, that they've taken control. So they ran an investigation as they should have. They took the complaint seriously as they should have. And then they've taken action rather than letting somebody resign and kind of slide off slightly. So I think that's really important and that we want to look at accountability structures around that. And then if those accountability structures are done well, we do have an organisation with a vision and a mission that is beyond the individual who is leading it in that season. Um, again, 24-7 Prayer was founded by somebody else. It's a bigger organisation in that way. This isn't the founder going. This is somebody who came into the system. Uh, I think Hillsongs will struggle more and how they handled it, I think, will rightly get some pushback and critique about that. Because as you said, we've looked at this. How, do we, how does that look to a victim when somebody's allowed to resign out? So those are those are the questions, and I think this does go to accountability across the board. Uh, where are the leadership structures, the kind of whatever system you want to put in place, the bishops, the elders, depending on whether you're a church or an organisation, the board, the trustees, how do we hold people accountable for their actions? Nobody is above the law. Nobody is gets to do that. And you need to be really careful about spiritual language that tries to get you out of that. And God's told me and I'm doing this and I'm moving in this direction. And we need to have the private accountability around, not private, sorry, but the the transparency as to where that happens, we don't, those conversations don't have to happen in public around the accountability, but the board or others need to know that each leader is accountable. Nobody is beyond that and nobody can be and nobody should be. And we've often put high risk structures around that that don't drive that. And because so, sorry, I know that's focused a little bit on the two men we've talked about because I don't want to miss 
the victims in this moment. They have been brave to come forward. They have had their stories taken seriously and then investigated. And I love what Rachel Den Hollander and Diane Landsberg and others are doing in helping us relook at our systems as to how we do that to make sure there's space for that. We should need to be there, but we live in a fallen world. We need to be realistic about that. It would be lovely to say these things aren't happening. So we have safeguarding, we have systems and procedures, but we've got to open the space in which those things come through and provide protection for both groups in that. As in when allegations are made, they've got to be a serious piece of investigation and then we've got to take action appropriately. So there's loads more we could probably say about that, but that's certainly my first thoughts around that. I'm also now acutely aware that we have now run slightly over time. So Danny, I was gonna invite you in, but actually we probably need to land a little bit uh, on where we've been. Uh, I wanna say thank you so much to everybody who's listened along with us in this first season. We have managed to get from kind of Boris Johnson and Partygate through uh, Novak Djokovic and free speech and all the issues around that. We have looked at the Winter Olympics in Beijing um, the persecution of the Uyghur people and what it looks like in terms of freedom of religion in this moment. We have talked about the war in Ukraine. Uh, we have looked at some of the issues around how that's prosecuted, what that looks like for Christians on the ground. Uh, we have looked at sex and power and periods and race. Uh, we have wrestled with some of those issues. We are not for a second saying that we've resolved them, but what we want to say is we're not scared to go into those conversations. We absolutely need to be in the mix of those uh, and perhaps as we close, particularly off the back of the Brian Houston and Mike Andrea story, we have signposted people like Rachel Den Hollander. Just a reminder that she was a lady who was abused by the US Olympic uh, um, coach, uh, Larry Nazir, I think he is, uh, and brought that story to the fore. She is a wonderful advocate, trained lawyer, but also a victim and a spokesperson who's uh, done so well about that. Uh, he was the US uh, sorry, Olympic doctor, I think it is, I'm being corrected. And then so Rachel and uh, Diane Landsberg, who's written wonderfully into this space. And we need to look and be prepared to look at the church and call out stuff that is absolutely wrong and abhorrent and is counter to the mission of God in this moment. And those stories are bumped right up into the mainstream press. Uh, and we want to say we need to engage in those because those are exactly the stories we're going to get asked about. Uh, along with the cost of living crisis and all of the other things that are going on. So I want to say thank you to Damalola, who is often on with us, isn't here today. Danny, uh, regularly with us. Joe, who has been both a host, a guest, a, a producer, who's tried to gently corral us in the background to make this happen. Alicia was a special guest. Tim, who's done a lot of stuff on the front end to get things set up for us. And uh, somebody who's behind the scenes almost all the time is Chris Ringland does a fantastic job producing, editing out the mistakes that we make and getting this podcast out the door for us. Thank you for joining us in season one of Cross Section and we will see you after Easter for another season as we wrestle with the intersection of the issues. What it is to follow Jesus in this cultural context? Be blessed. Cross Section. Conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture.